Father's Day. Thank you so much for being here on this Father's Day to all the dads out there. Uh, if you're here today and you're a guest, thank you for being here. You're here on week two of our series called Since You Asked. It's actually going to be a three-week series. It'll end the, uh, next week, and then we'll start a new series in July. I'll be sharing with you more about that next week. But uh, if you're a guest, thank you for being here. So let's, uh, let's continue where we left off last week. You submitted questions to me, and I am doing my best to answer those questions uh, from a biblical worldview, a biblical perspective. Last week, the questions were uh, primarily historical or intellectual in nature, This week, the questions are going to be way more situational Christianity, uh, almost exclusively situational Christianity. How do I live out my Christian life in this kind of context? And then next week, my goal would be to talk about some of the theological questions that uh, that you have, some of those issues that come up that uh, are interesting to talk about, but we shouldn't divide over. At least for the most part, uh, that's what we're going to talk about. And so uh, I'm looking forward to that next week. But let's talk today about some of the questions, or let's answer some of the questions that you've asked about uh, Christianity, how to live it out in, in everyday context. So, question number one this morning, since you ask, is this. Matt, my husband has been working a, at a certain job, and I've left out a few details, obviously, for almost four years. He's always happy to help anyone out, but lately, they have been using him a lot. And it's become more of him doing their jobs along with his own. The main person who does this to him is another pastor, He tells him that, I love this, he is blessing him with overtime. But whenever my husband needs help with something, he gets turned down. As for the other guys he works with, they can always manipulate him by saying, but you're a Christian and you're supposed to help when someone needs it. My husband doesn't know how to respond. It's an interesting scenario to start with, isn't it? So in the the workplace... A Christian is called upon to do more than his job requires because others say he's a Christian and that's what Christians should do. And it was actually another Christian, a pastor, obviously a bivocational pastor, who's, who's presented this scenario to him. There's obviously some guilt associated with that by saying no. And so what is a person to do in a situation like this? Well, so let me just quickly unpack this for, those, for the individual and for the family who asked this question. But for all of us, generally speaking, there's nothing in Scripture that demands us to do someone else's job for them. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, does say that if someone asks you to go a mile, go two miles. Someone asks for your, you know, your your outer garment, give him whatever garments you can give him. It is true. In a general sense, there's this picture of serving and this picture of generosity. And I think that should be the heart of a believer in every context. Certainly, we ought to be willing to give and willing to serve uh, and willing to be generous. But that's not the problem here. The problem here is laziness. I agree with this this individual's estimation of what's going on. If someone just isn't getting their job done, then there's no requirement in Scripture for a Christian or for anyone else to do the job of someone else. The truth of the matter is, Paul makes this really clear. If a man doesn't work, he should not eat. In other words, do your job. You perform the functions that you're supposed to perform, uh, and, and, and you carry out your responsibility. Now, in the context of the local church, this is clear as well, that God has gifted each of us with certain gifts, and each one of us should discover those gifts, operate in those gifts, and contribute to the overall good of the body, and ultimately to the overall good of the community or the 
or the area in which they serve, in which they live. So the picture is, and this is what Paul says, that the, that the church itself is healthy as each person discovers who they are, lives it out, and contributes. That the body is healthy and functions as each person does its part. That's specifically about the church, but it's certainly true in the context of any work environment as well. I'll just tell you, at our church, we obviously we have staff members that work. If someone at, in our staff is not pulling their weight, is not cutting it, they're going to have a conversation with their direct report or ultimately with me. We're not going to stand for people not doing their responsibility and their job. And so I would just encourage you, whoever you are, I would encourage you to have some freedom in this. There is no obligation for you to do someone else's job. It is very appropriate for you to say no, and it's totally okay. And this is important for all of us to hear. There are some of us in the room, you struggle greatly with setting boundaries and saying no to others because you are a a people-pleasing person. That is me. One of the greatest gifts you can give yourself, your family, and quite honestly, the other person who's who's requiring that kind of stuff from you is is to just say, no, I can't do it. So I would encourage you to just, for what it's worth, in an appropriate, kind, loving, Christian way, say, I'm sorry, I can't do it. It's perfectly okay to say no. Even if they say, I'm a pastor and I'm blessing you with overtime. (laughs) The answer can still be no. All right, hope that helps. Next question, since you ask, how can we find good in bad situations? How can we keep our faith strong in the midst of bad and evil? That's a very good question, and it's, it's, it's very general, so I'll have to speak to the issue generally for a moment. But it is a good question, so think about the question. How do we find good in bad situations? What I would suggest to you, and I think every, every person in the room has experienced some kind of bad in their life. You've had something difficult happen in your journey, in your life. You've been laid off. You had a financial difficulty. Someone stabbed you in the back. Uh, you know, we, 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 we lose loved ones. Uh, we go through all kinds of physical problems. And so everyone has experienced some level of bad or difficulty in their life. And, and this is an interesting question. And I think it's a, it's a misunderstanding of Scripture. The question is, think about the question for a moment. How can I find good in bad situations? There's no requirement in Scripture for us to find good in bad situations. Hear me. Sometimes there is just bad in bad situations. Sometimes there's nothing good going on in a bad situation. So I I think it's a misunderstanding for us to assume that we need to find something good going on when something bad is happening. Sometimes it's just bad. What is important, though, for the Christian and the believer is to understand that God can create good from a bad situation. So I'm all for having, you know, having faith and confidence in God in the midst of the difficulty. But sometimes it's just ugly and bad in and of itself. We're sinful people and we do sinful things. And sometimes life is just hard and bad. But out of that difficulty and out of that brokenness and out of that, that, that hurt and that wound, God has a way of redeeming the bad and bringing about something good from it. And so I would encourage you, for the, for the person who asked this question, I would encourage you not to feel some kind of theological pressure or biblical pressure or spiritual f- pressure to find good in it but rather understand that God works everything out for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. That he's at work even in the bad to bring about eventually something that is of value and of worth. So I hope that helps answer the question for you this morning. Next question, since you ask, 
Matt, when you are praying for a sign and what direction God wants you to go, and there's a little voice in your head, I've heard that voice, how do you know if, it's that, if, if that is him, or I love this, or if that's what you're wanting? That's a really, really good question. I know we're all, all over the map in these three questions, but it really is interesting. So think about this for a moment. Some of us are in the room today, there's certainly one in, one in the room probably, that is going through a period of time where you're uncertain about what God wants to do or what you think God is up to in your life. This is a really important question to answer, isn't it? How do I know when God is speaking to me uh, or when it's me just wanting something? All right, so um, let me just say to you, if that is you this morning, if you've ever wondered how do I know what God's voice sounds like, let me say to you that this is a learned experience over time. That hearing the voice of God is something that, that becomes more familiar the more you're willing to listen. Uh, the story in, in, in 1 Samuel, for instance, you see the unfolding of God speaking and the young child not understanding and, and knowing whose voice it is that's speaking. You can read this in, 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 in the beginnings of, of, of 1 Samuel. Um, and, 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 and God speaking several times, three times to be exact, before, before someone else has to understand, Eli has to understand, hey, it's not me that's speaking, but it's God that's speaking. It, it, it takes time to be able to recognize the voice of God. And so I would just encourage you to be patient with the process. Sometimes it's difficult to understand when God's speaking or when, quite honestly, it's just, it's just your own, your own uh, personal whims and wishes. Uh, but here's the really good news. You ready? God is patient with us. It's not as though when God, when God speaks to us that if we don't respond the first time, he just like gives up on us. Oh, that's a lost cause. I'm done with that person, right? And I'm thankful that's not the case. God is willing to re-engage with us over and over again through the, through the power of the Spirit or through the speaking of the Spirit internally to us. All right, so that's generally true. Now let's get specific. This is a really good question. How do you know that is God speaking to you? All right, so a couple things you need to know about this. Number one, I can tell you that primarily when God speaks to me, he speaks in the core of my being here before he ever speaks intellectually up here. That there's a movement here in the core of my being, and I can't even explain to you exactly how it feels. I can just tell you I was saved when I was five or six and I'm 38, so after 30-something years of this process, I can sense God speaking here first. And eventually it translates to some kind of thought or some kind of uh, some, kind of, uh, some kind of information that I can process up here. So this is where the, the spirit, I believe, speaks first. It's in the core of my being. And let me tell you what that feels like. Sometimes it feels like peace, and sometimes it feels like uh, uh, troubling. Sometimes it feels like a check in your gut. But let me tell you something about when that happens in your life. Hear me. When you are sensing that God may be speaking... It's really important to understand that the Spirit will never speak anything contrary to what has already been declared in Scripture. That there will always be a a unity between what you sense in your spirit and what God's Word has already said. Do you know why that's the case? Because the Spirit speaks on behalf of the Son. The Spirit's job is to bring glory to the Son. And the Son's job is to bring glory to the Father. So the Father has orchestrated this plan of redemption. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is your Savior. He is your groom. We are the bride. And Jesus utters and the Spirit speaks in glorification of the Son. And so the Son has declared truth. We have in the, in, in, in the Gospels and in, in the New Testament. And it will never contradict itself. All right, now, 
Let me unpack that a little bit further because this is important. I preached a message or spoke on this years and years ago, but it's worth restating because many of you weren't here years and years ago at Solace Church. Very interesting if you look at Scripture, the unfolding of how God speaks to our heart. There's really three major areas and maybe a fourth, but let me just give you the three. There are three major ways that God speaks to us. Now, now, notwithstanding the fact that God has already revealed to us much of what we should be doing in his word. (laughs) If you ever wonder what you should be doing, just uh, open up scripture and read a bit. That's a great place to turn to if you're ever confused about what you need to be doing. But specifically when God's speaking, you're trying to make a decision about a job, you're trying to make a decision about a relationship, you're trying to make other decisions. There are three different ways. Number one, God sometimes speaks in an urgent manner. So in a sense, you'll have this, 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 immediate, this immediate sense, go do now. It's the urgency matter. God has something at hand that you need to be doing in that very moment. Have you ever thought for a moment, I need to pay for that person's gas, or I need to pay for that person's meal, or I need to go take money here, or I need to send that text message now, or I need to send that email? Have you ever felt that before? That is the Spirit of God saying to you in that moment, right now, go do. Why? Because God and his sovereignty is working through you to send a message, to send some kind of demonstration of his grace or his love or his truth to someone in an immediate sense. It's urgent. Go do now. Have you ever not done it? I've, I've, I've missed those moments many, many times in my life. And I, I wonder often, oh, God chose me and I missed the moment to be used by God. So I do my very best, even though it's uncomfortable and weird. Sometimes it's just out of place. Like, you may do that right now. Like, I don't want to want to do that right now. I'm, I'm busy doing other things. I don't have time for that. I, I try to be responsive to how God moves in the urgent moments so that I can understand that he's up to something right now and he's chosen me to be a part of it. The second way that God moves is through a mandate. It is a moment in a person's life where God stamps something so clearly on their heart that it moves them on a trajectory for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, or maybe their whole life. Certainly a call of God into ministry is one of those things. A call into missions is one of those things. But it, it, it's, it's starting a business, starting a relationship, uh, you know, uh, starting a, some kind of other uh, ministry opportunity. It's a stamp. It's a mandate where God says, this is what I was, you were created for. This is a moment of clarity for you, a mandate moment. We see that in Scripture that God calls people to certain things. Uh, and uh, so it's a mandate moment. That was true for me when God called me to be a pastor. Uh, God called me into ministry when I was 17. It only took me six months to figure that out. Six short months of running before I accepted the mandate. The other, the other mandate for me very clearly was the moment when God called, uh, called me to start Solace Church. There was no, no doubt in my mind. I had another one as well. I'll share it. <laughs> the other one was when God called me to pursue the, uh, God called us to pursue the uh, old Walmart building. <laughs> it didn't work out. I'm glad it didn't. But I know for sure he called. And it sets a trajectory. It's the mandate, the moment of clarifying. You can rest on that. I think the third way that God moves, and the third way that you can understand maybe uh, in this moment how God is, is stirring, is um, uh, through, uh, the third way is the stirring. So the urgent moment, the mandate, and the stirring. So, so this is the way it's worked in my life. There's been times where I've had a sense in my gut that, that something was going on. And I just didn't understand exactly what it was. 
Uh, read Peter's account where he goes up to the rooftop and there's a blanket spread out or actually it comes down from heaven. There's food distributed on it and God says, eat. And Peter says, no, I can't eat. It's unclean. And God said, what I made clean, don't call unclean. And then Peter uh, comes, he, he's wondering, he's trying to figure out why in the world did I have this moment uh, where, where you know, God's trying to reveal something to me. And all of a sudden people show up at his door and said, you're supposed to be at another place. And then over time, God reveals Uh, more of what was going on in Peter's life on the rooftop. It's the stirring effect that happens over the course of time. And I will tell you that if you've ever been stirred by God, if you've ever felt right here, gosh, something, God is doing something, I just can't figure it out. If you've ever felt that before, hear me. It's both wonderful and miserable. It's wonderful in the sense that you have some activity and you feel like God may be up to something and it's miserable because it never unfolds as quickly as you want it to unfold. It's always a longer process of discovery. And so just know that that's some of the ways that God moves. And you learn that over time. All right, so let me see the question again, make sure I answer. Let's go back real quick uh, and make sure I answer that question. Okay, I answered that question. (laughs) Next question. Since you ask, I know we discuss and learn about Loving people and showing mercy and grace. But what does that process look like? And how do you know if it's just too toxic to stay in a relationship? Namely, work relationships and friendships. How do I know if I'm supposed to stay in this work relationship or this friendship if it's toxic? Okay, now, uh, I did read this question in more depth uh, this individual said, and I'm not talking about a marriage, and I would agree with that, that it, this, this question really doesn't pertain to a marriage relationship because even if a marriage is toxic, there are some biblical reasons for divorce and, and some reasons to stay even though it's difficult. So you're asking about work relationships and friendships. So here's the short answer. You ready? If the relationship is toxic, you have a couple of options. Number one, there's a biblical model for restoration. Uh, Matthew 18, Matthew 19, 19's divorce, Matthew 18, I think that's where it is, Matthew 18 or 19, check that passage of scripture out. Um, Jesus lays forth a clear picture. Go to that person and seek to restore the relationship. And if you, have, if you work to restore and both of you uh, uh, operate in reconciliation and forgiveness, then you've won a brother over. If not, take someone with you. If not, then you, then you step uh, into the, into the uh, land of the church. Then you include the church. And if that doesn't work, then you treat them as a pagan or, or, or someone outside. In other words... Go through the process of reconciliation. If you can sit down and have a tough conversation to restore the relationship, do it. Now, church, hear me. As your pastor, we, as a body of Christ, are not good at tough conversations. One of our core values is that we will grow up. And part of growing up is being able to sit down with someone in a room and saying, we're broken, can we be fixed? Is there a way for us to move forward? Here's my offense. I want to hear your offense. Let's work towards reconciliation. We're not good at that. Do you know what we normally do? We run. We run from churches. We run from uh, 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 all kinds of environments. And I would encourage you not to run. Jesus did not run away from reconciliation. He did the tough work to restore relationships. And we're called to do that as well. We model the image of Christ when we're willing to sit down in front of someone else and engage in a difficult conversation. Be willing to do it. If there is an unwillingness to reconcile and it is toxic, you are not required in Scripture to stay in toxic relationships. As a matter of fact, if you've gone through the process to try to reconcile and you've been humble before God, and as far as it depends on on you, you've lived at peace 
then if there's no reconciliation possibility, then you can be, have, have assurance to move forward. Jesus told this to his disciples oftentimes. He said, if you go into a town and people don't receive you, dust the, dust the, uh, uh, shake the dust off your feet and move on to someone else who will, right? There's nothing wrong with that. You don't have to be rude. You don't have to be inconsiderate. You can be full of grace in that process, but you can distance yourself and that's perfectly okay. And by the way, I think it's okay to say, you know what? I love you, I respect you, but this dynamic's not gonna work and I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to go my, uh, my separate way. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Be courageous in that, it's okay, totally okay. Now, one other thing about this. If you're in environments where you're trying to be Jesus, to be light shining into darkness. Don't run from those opportunities. Someone else might be toxic, but if it's not toxic to you, you don't have to run away from that. Jesus, and we'll see in a moment, Jesus actually engaged in very toxic relationships, but he brought light into darkness. He wasn't affected by the darkness. And as long as you can walk in that darkness and not be affected by the darkness, then it's okay to be light in darkness, all right? So, but if it's toxic to you, you don't have to stay as long as you've tried to reconcile. But reconcile first. Go reconcile first. As a matter of fact, lastly on that note, Jesus said, if you know that there's a problem with you and someone else, you go fix that before you come to church and worship. It's probably not what you were wanting to hear. Next, since you ask. Matthew 10, 16 says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Jesus went out into the market, markets and the holy people called him drunken, glutton, and friend of sinners. That's Matthew eleven nineteen. What does this mean in this time and culture? What does this look like for us and for our children? So Jesus, and I, I spoke about this, uh, I believe, back in November. Um, and so I, I, it's really, you didn't know that this, is, this, was a, this was a good time to ask this question because Back in November, when I talked about this, do you remember the crisis? It was Syrian refugee crisis. Do you remember that? Where the where United States was trying to make the decision on whether or not we would, have, we would allow Syrian refugees to make their way into the United States. Well, uh, that's very much a problem still today. You guys, if you read the news and read the current events, you know this is an issue in our world today. Um, and so just quickly, let me say something about November that I didn't get a chance to say. Uh, and thank you for asking. You didn't know that I was looking for a chance to respond and to, and to revisit this. One of the things I said back in November was that I, I believe our greatest problem is not necessarily Islamic terrorism. The greatest problem is that we have lost people who need Jesus. Right? And so what I said is, and I, and I want to be clear on this because some of you may have been confused and I may not have said it clearly. Um, I, I, I said that it's very important that uh, if we allow refugees in, if we allow people into, the, into our country, that we, we better know who they are. I think Governor Fallon said, let's stop the process until we can vet them thoroughly. And I think that's exactly right. I don't want to be a closed border place where we don't let anyone in. You know, none of us would have come if that was the case. But I obviously don't want to be a place where we allow people in that, that could harm us and hurt us. I, I think that we're very, very, uh, I think that we should be very committed to that process. And this is not a political speech. I just want to be clear on this, that, that, that we better make sure we know who's coming into the country for sure. And I think when Jesus says to be harmless as doves, to be wise as serpents, maybe it's innocent, um, um, innocent as doves and shrewd, sharp, full of, full of wisdom. When he says that, he's talking about the way in which we conduct ourselves in the world. And Jesus was a friend of sinners. So it goes back to really that last question that I asked. Try to reconcile these two worlds. Innocent and harmless, moral characters, pure, 
um, full of wisdom, being able to speak truth into, into any given situation. And then Jesus going and sitting with gluttons, with drunkards, with sinners. Reconcile that in today's world. Well, here's what that looks like. You ready? I would encourage us, as Jesus did, to be willing to go into any kind of context. And to not be scared of any group of people, any, any specific setting or context. Jesus would have walked into a bar he would have walked into a nightclub. He would have walked. I know that's uncomfortable and weird, and I'll probably get in trouble for saying that, but he would have walked into those. Jesus was not scared. Now, would Jesus engage or approve of certain kinds of activities? Of course not. Uh, would Jesus have walked into to, 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 uh, pagan temple worship? No, he actually would not. It's very clear that, that, that thou shalt have no other gods before me. He would not be participating in those kinds of activities. But in terms of engaging people where they are, Jesus was very much about meeting people where they are. He didn't just ask people to come to him. He went to the woman at the well that no one else would go to. He went to Zacchaeus up in a tree, <laughs> you know, where no one else would want to deal with him. And so he went where they were. And so how was he? He was of perfect moral character. And he spoke truth into their life. That's exactly what Christians are called to do. You, you, you operate with high moral character and you speak into someone's life after you've demonstrated love to them. So I think that's the context that Jesus is calling us to. Go into the world. Don't be scared of the world. Be in the world, not of the world. Go into the world and be light shining in darkness. That's the, that's the whole message of how we live this out. All right, next question since you ask. Oh, goodness. I'm constantly confused by my feelings towards current issues such as homosexuality, transgender, atheism, and knowing how to show love without sending the message that I support it. Wow, that's, that's a good follow-up, so I can unpack that in some more depth. There are so many Christians who are hateful towards those involved, and I know that this is the wrong way to be, but what is the right reaction? Do you let God's word be known if it's asked and show love the rest of the time or make it a point to... To let God's word be known first. That's a really good question. (laughs) Some of us do this. I'll explain it in a moment. If the latter, how do you make it not awkward or abrasive? Why would they ever want to listen to God's word after the dreaded Christian Facebook lecture? (laughs) Sarcasm. People can just be hateful and hide this hateful reaction behind God's truth. I just can't help feeling like it's the wrong approach. All right, my Facebook warriors out there. There are many. And I feel like, like social media platforms are a good platform to be able to speak truth. I use it for that often as well. But what message are we sending? It's really important to consider your online presence. Uh, what you say online, depending on how many friends you have, goes out to 10 or 100 or 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000 or 10,000, whatever your number is. It matters. You are the ambassador of Christ as though God were making his appeal through you. I want you to think about that for a moment. You carry the gospel. Jesus is no longer here to carry the gospel. He handed it off to the disciples and they handed it off and they handed it off and 2,000 years later, it's been handed off to us. We carry the gospel with us everywhere we go. You carry the gospel and by the way, you carry the name Solace Church with you. When you check in at Solace Church on Facebook and your next post (laughs) is inappropriate... 
It matters. That's a side note. That wasn't biblical. That's nowhere in scripture. But I'm just saying, just so you remember, you carry the gospel. How you carry it matters. It's really interesting to me, and this, is, this has happened several times uh, here lately, and I'm okay with that. It's really interesting to me that the issue of homosexuality and transgender and, and atheism, I, I actually have never seen those three together, but it's really interesting to see the question. Why, why is that a repetitive question? Why is that coming to the surface over and over again? It's really important that you hear this this morning, church. The reason why these issues are front and center is because of the cultural relevance or the cultural atmosphere in which we live. Atheism is a very um, cool intellectual position. Atheists have made atheism cool. Where God has said, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Atheism today says, the fool says there is a God. That's why it's so front and center in conversations. Homosexuality is front and center in our conversations as well. Because of news events, because of, 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 of court cases and, and, and laws that are being passed, and uh, the issue of marriage and those issues, it's a, it's a front and center issue. And then obviously transgender is as well, because of current events as well. These are front and center I'm going, to make a, I'm going to make one political statement. Will you allow me to do that? And I'm not running for office, so don't vote for him. But I do want to make one political statement as it relates to this question. Um, I was deeply saddened by the events that happened in Orlando. It broke my heart to see that in our nation that we've come to a place where this is the kind of activity that we must be concerned about. It's tragic that we find ourselves here. It speaks to the brokenness of where we are as a people, as a culture. There's no question about that. And certainly, it's, it's, it's terribly offensive to know that there was, there was Islamic terrorism at play. It's, it's, it's deeply saddening to know that, that Islam and Christianity or Islam and other cultures are at, at, at not just a, a, a theological war, but they are at a physical war. There are, there are, there's the willingness for us to engage in physical killings because of our ideology, and that's tragic. To see, uh, see us in that situation. And I'm going to make this statement. This is going to, be, this is going, to, be, this is going to sound um, mildly offensive, but I don't mean it with offense. Uh, yesterday I saw that, uh, that one of the soccer uh, games uh, paused for a moment of silence to recognize those who were killed uh, in the Orlando attacks. And one of the ways they recognized them is by setting up balloons in the colors of the rainbow which is what the LGBTQ community celebrates, the rainbow, which is kind of their mantra, their, 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 their image, their picture. And I actually thought that was a disservice to the people. And this is not an attack against LGBTQ. I actually thought it was a disservice to the people because it defined them so narrowly. They weren't United States citizens that died. That's what the signal was. They were the LGBT community that died. And I actually don't want to put people in that tight of group. They were Americans that died. They were, they were minding their own business. And someone savagely came in and killed them. And for that, I am deeply saddened. I don't want to see them just through that one filter. 
We can have debates over the rightness or wrong that, wrongness of that biblically. But I was broken that my fellow citizens were killed in a totally inappropriate way. So I just want to be clear on that. Um, so the issue of, the, of, of loving people in this, in, in this context is important. And here's what I would say. <laughs> All right. This is really important for our church to hear. I never, ever go throughout my day engaging with people, giving them a litmus test on how I'm going to love them or engage with them. I don't walk up to people and say, now, wait, 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 wait. I need to know if you are a part of the LGBT community uh, or not before I talk to you. I don't do that with people. When I engage with people, I, I try to love them like Jesus, regardless of, of what kind of group someone may attach them to. I want to meet them wherever they are in the journey. And quite honestly, I want to love them wherever they are. And I don't need to know all that information up front. <laughs> For the person who asks, should I give God's word first? No. Absolutely not. Don't tell them all about the right and wrong of Scripture. <laughs> just be a human. <laughs> just say hi. And just love them for a moment before you ever do anything else. I, I don't think you want that litmus, litmus test on you. Before I talk to you, are you that Christian type? Do you want people treating you that way? So I hope that helps. Next. Last. Why as a church do we not talk about heaven often? If it's our incentive, our reward, why do we not constantly talk about it? I think knowing more about heaven could help so many people deal with anxieties and fears. It could also empower more people to talk to non-believers. Is that the last of the slide? Okay. Good question. Lastly, why don't we talk about heaven more? Ouch. That's good. I'm going to take that as a word of constructive criticism as your pastor. I could have left this question out. You could have never known someone asked this question, but I thought, what a great question. I think it's absolutely true that we get so caught up in the here and now that sometimes we miss what's ahead for us as believers. And so... I'm not in charge necessarily of the sermon series. I try to be sensitive to how Jesus leads, so I'm going to blame Jesus partly here. (laughs) I don't know if I can do that or not. I'm not sure. I'm going to check my gut real quick to see if he's telling me anything. Hold on. I love the question, and I'll give it much prayer and consideration as to we don't have a series scheduled or planned for uh, a series on heaven, but I'll be spending some time thinking about that and praying about that because it is important. And not to try to try to you know to uh, reclaim all the months and years that we haven't talked about heaven here at Solace Church in you know one sentence or two. But a- as this question was asked, it did remind me of John chapter fourteen. Jesus said, "Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God." Believe also in me. My Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I'm going to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where you are, or where I am, there you can be also. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. 
Jesus very much is preparing a place for us. And I believe with all of my heart that one day he will come again. I don't know exactly when it is. Maybe next week we'll get to talk some eschatology. I don't know exactly when he's coming back. But when he does, the promise and assurance of the believer is Paul's words as well. That he is giving us a crown of righteousness. It's laid up for us. And he's giving that to everyone who long for his appearing. There is a place where there's no more pain. There is a place where there's no more tears. There is a place where loved ones who have gone before me, who have loved Jesus, I'll see again. And I long for that day. So therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we waste away, yet inwardly we can be renewed day by day by day. And we should never grow weary in doing well. In living out the gospel with grace and truth. For we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. I want to encourage you today to consider maybe how God today through his spirit resonated in your heart with some question or some word or some biblical verse And I want that to be a moment for you, for God just to speak into your current context for a moment. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Hey, this is Pastor Matt Blair. Thank you so much for taking time to check out our podcast today at solacechurch.com. You know, we realize that it's possible, as you listen to this message today, that God may have spoken to your heart about something. So if you made any kind of spiritual decision, we would love to know about that. You can email us at info at solacechurch.com and let us know what happened in your life today. Once again, thank you so much for taking time to check out this podcast.